all that matters is. Wrong! This town deserves a better class of heavy metal podcast. I'm gonna get a. If you do not listen, then the hell with you. Ah, the sweet sounds of Druid. Druid. Welcome back, you beautiful mother punchers. What is the up? Uh, I don't know. And welcome to And Volume for All, a deeply reverent and lovingly irreverent exploration of the history philosophy, and future of the greatest music in the world, heavy metal. This is episode two, titled After Sabbath, the NWO, BHM, and Friends. Now, for those of you who don't know, NWO, BHM is the acronym for New Wave of British Heavy Metal, or NUWABAM. Yes, people call it NUWABAM, which is what happens when you release a new record it's your you're putting out your new album oof yeah that's the kind of quality content you're going to get here at and volume for all so just stick around for more of that uh email me at av4apod at gmail or find me on twitter at av4apod i want to hear what you think i want to hear what you think about the last episode and about this episode um as i'm recording it how am I doing? How are you doing? How's Vince Neil doing? That's what I want to know. So let me know. Tell me. Talk to me. Uh, that's why I did this. I want to hear from you, and I want to talk about uh, music, because it's what I love. It's the entire reason why I did a podcast. So um, I also realized that, you know, like a very professional podcaster, I did not introduce myself in the, the last episode. I am Quinn. Nice to meet you the second time. Um, but now that we are properly introduced, I want to get into the episode because it's a, it's another uh, big one. I tried in the last episode, in the first episode, w- titled, What is Heavy Metal? I tried to lay out some big ideas in that first behemoth, trademark, of an episode. And it's probably a good idea to do a, a quick recap at the top of this one. So go ahead. I want you to imagine these those essential pillars of metal that we talked about. Um, I'm going to go back over them really quickly. So just kind of think of it as like an A-team style montage where they're trying to blow up a bridge to save a small community or some app. Here we go. Heavy metal is built on the principles of extremity and opposition. And here's the three sort of ideas that live, I think, as subcategories underneath extremity. Subcategories. Don't we love those in metal? It's what we're it's what we're built on, arguing about which one's better. Subject matter. Heavy metal tends toward the superlative. Metal doesn't write songs about making one's way downtown while walking fast as faces passed, while one is as a matter of fact, homebound. Metal tends toward the limits of the human experience. So while a person may make their way downtown, it's likely the downtown of a dystopian hellscape where the robot apocalypse is entering its final phases. B is scale. In a pop song, 
you might walk 500 miles. You might even walk 500 more just to be the man who walks a thousand miles to fall down at a door. But in a metal song, you would travel five million light years and you would travel five million more just to be the man who falls through a door into a void beyond the void, a frozen corpse hurtling through forever night as a warning to all alien civilizations about the dangers of any society in which technology outpaces ethical maturity. Convention. The average pop song might run three to four minutes and feature about as many chords, uh, if you're Green Day. A metal band might cover that song and play it in 15, 16 time signature for a half an hour and call it the B-side. The second big idea after extremity is opposition. Okay, those are the two big pillars that, that I kind of have laid out in that first go-round. And there's two sort of subcategories underneath that. The first, A, is critique. Metal tends to be critical of its subject matter. Most often they're pointing at this thing that they're talking about and going, hey, this thing, it's fucked up. This thing's wrong, and we want to talk about it. We want to deconstruct it. The other one is defiance. There's a strong thread of independence in metal, that feeling that we have of don't tell me what to do and don't let anyone else tell you because I'm not going to either, right? Nobody gets to tell nobody else what to do. Um, wow, that was a lot faster than I said it last time. Uh, I should do speed more often. But that means that we have time to talk about what happened after Sabbath, which, you know what? That's a pretty good title. All right. I'm going to be totally honest with you. The 80s is not my favorite decade for metal, with very few, very specific exceptions. And I will tell you a little bit about that later. Um, but I also have to admit to being a bit of a Judge Judy when it comes to what is known as the new wave of British heavy metal, or Nuwabum. Which, no, no matter how much I look at it, for, for what I'm sure is the stupidest reason, my brain reads NKOTB. Which, at one point or another, was short for New Kids on the Block. It's not NKOTB. Because that acronym contains no H, no M, and almost certainly no W. But my stupid eyes look at N-W-O-B-H-M and then tell my stupid brain to say N-K-O-T-B. And I, I got this brain like 40 years ago. It should have some mileage left on it. But here I am with N-K-O-T-B. Crock of shit. So I'm an 80s kid. I was born in 1980, but a lot of the music that came from the time just didn't resonate with me. And the kids that listened to like Judas Priest and Iron Maiden were teenagers in the 80s. And honestly, they scared the shit out of me. My first foray into the NWOBHM or Nuwabum was Def Leppard. I loved Def Leppard. Hysteria was my first favorite album as a kid. And from there, I got into their back catalog, Pyromania, High and Dry, On Through the Night. High and Dry is my absolute favorite. It's just, that's a killer album. 
But those albums ended up being my gateway drug into rock radio. After Def Leppard, my favorite band became ACDC, which led to Ozzy Osbourne, which led to Black Sabbath, where the title of favorite band has remained since somewhere around the 10th or 11th year of my life. It's always come back around to, uh, to that sweet, sweet tune of Black Sabbath. So point being, I wasn't really into new album bands. And maybe you weren't or aren't either. So let me do a quick rundown of just who is included in that category. The new wave of British heavy metal includes, but is not limited to, Diamond Head, Sweet Savage, Saxon, White Spirit, Raven, not to be confused with That's So Raven, a popular television show about a young girl and how her behavior qualitatively reflects on the nature of her being. Parallax, Def Leppard, Weapon, Samson, Hollow Ground, Girl School, Iron Maiden, Jaguar, Judas Priest, Tigers of Pantang, Angel Witch, Blitzkrieg, A to Z spelled with a a two but in Roman numerals so as not to disappoint those expecting the band to close their shows with end of the road in a four-part harmony or like any harmony for that matter. Fist, excuse me, I got fist stuck in my throat. (laughs) Sounds like my weekend. Fist, Praying Mantis, Witchfind, and Witchfinder General. And yes, while those last two sound like I might have read the same band name twice, they are in fact different entities. Witchfinder General was a modestly popular band, but they were unique in that they were one of the first bands to practice Sabbath worship, unabashed through their music. And in that, they were, you know, they were hugely influential to a subgenre known as doom metal. A lot of which is just honest-to-God attempts by bands not to create a unique sound of their own, but rather to directly channel Black Sabbath through their own impulses, you know, af- after their own fashion. Or at least that's that's how it started. Um, and now that subgenre has spawned others like Death Doom or Funeral Doom, Melodic Doom, Goth Doom, Prog Doom, uh, Black Doom, Black and Death Doom, and an underwear-themed subgenre called Fruit of the Doom, which I just made up. But for a second, you thought about Googling it. Just, just a second, didn't you? Okay, so that's Witchfinder General. Witchfind, on the other hand, was a modestly unpopular band, which wasn't unique at all, and hugely influenced exactly no one. The way that I like to differentiate those two bands is to think of Witchfinder General as uh, former NBA center Theo Ratliff and Witchfind as a different guy who's also named Theo Ratliff, if that helps. It helps me. So, as you may have noticed, most of those bands did not make an indelible mark on music history. They were part of a new wave, but as we know, waves crash. Uh, the four bands that I want to talk about today, to a greater or lesser extent, were part of that wave. But, and they not only survived, they went on to shape much of the next 40 years of heavy metal. All four of these bands are deeply important to the next stage of evolution in the genre. But these first guys, 
I think, are really the one who picked up Sabbath's crown and ran with it. Or rather, rode with it on a motorcycle through a wall of speakers. The mighty and terrible Judas Priest. Pounding the world like a battering ram. Forging the furnace for the final grand slam. Chopping away at the sauce soon the cause will be One of the reasons I think Judas Priest is the first true successor to Black Sabbath is just geography. Judas Priest formed in Birmingham, England, one year after Black Sabbath before them. The band got their name from a, a Bob Dylan song, The Ballad of Frankie Lee and Judas Priest. They, I guess they originally called themselves Judas Priest, but uh, they felt that it was a little on the nose. So they started as part of that blues renaissance that led to the creation of heavy metal. I read an interview with uh, one of Priest's former guitarists, former as of eh, sometime after the new century, so it was fairly recent. They had a kind of a falling out. K.K. Um, Downing, and, and he said there were bands that were around at the time, but were a year ahead of us. Bands like Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, doesn't mention Blue Cheer, that's weird, uh, if only we could have been there a year earlier, we could have gone the same route. The only difference, of course, is that we've been poor for many years, while we could have been rich for many years, like those other groups. If it sounds like, well, that's the end of the quote. If it sounds like K.K. Uh, Downing has a bit of a, a bit of a crisp on his shoulder, uh, I want to tell you that you are incorrect, sir or madam. K.K. Downing has a family-sized bag of Atomic Doritos on his shoulder, and most of the interviews you'll find with him are really just him listing all of his grudges. Uh, stubbing your toe, um, people who don't wave back, all of my bandmates, and the third season of Three's Company. I don't, honestly, I don't know if K.K. Downing sounds like that at all. I don't even know if they had Three's Company in England. Probably not. I don't say this to disparage the man, okay? Because remember when we talked about Richie Blackmore and Tony Iommi, Jimmy Page, and every member of Blue Cheer, the common denominator among truly great heavy metal and metal-adjacent guitarists is that they tend to be either like freaks who emerge from the womb just shredding on a Gibson Flying V, like Eddie Van Halen or Randy Rhodes, or... They're dudes with both a proverbial and actual axe to grind. Here's K.K. Downing talking about how he credits his parents for starting him on the path to metal godhood. When I got kicked out of the house, I'm not going to do the voice. When I got kicked out of the house, that's when I decided, I'm going to show ya. That was when I started to get serious about the guitar. I was a very unpopular person within my family. Because when you shut yourself away and just play guitar and you have long hair and you don't eat, or you stop relating to people because all you really want to do in the world is play your guitar, maybe they were right. Maybe I was on drugs in a sense. Yeah, guitar was my drug. I, 
I love that halfway through that sentence, he realizes who the problem was. It's also such a weird thing to describe yourself as unpopular in your family. It's not high school, dude. That's a family's like four people usually. I don't know that that counts as unpopular. But I don't know. Again, maybe it's an English thing. If they'd have had three's company. Between 1974 and 1979, Judas Priest pull uh, put out pull out Judas Priest pull out. Congratulations. I guess Rob Halford was in no danger of getting anyone pregnant. Um, Judas Priest put out five albums. Four of those charted in the top 50 in the U.S., but not a, a single one broke into the top 100 in the U.K. Okay, by contrast, by 1979, Led Zeppelin had put out eight records and all but their debut went to number one in the U.K., and all but two of those went to number one in the U.S., Sabbath had a number one record in the UK in 1970, and Deep Purple had a pair by 1972. You know, none of that matters in hindsight, but imagine watching all of your contemporaries making gold and platinum records year after year after year while you're just treading water because you missed the bus by a year. Well, in 1980, a new wave was on its way, and Judas Priest was determined to crash that fucker into the music industry like a methed-up Frankie Avalon with an album that went to number four in the UK and number 34 in the US, the first of five platinum albums that have carried them all the way to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in this year of our Lord, 2022, the album that heralded the coming of the new wave of British heavy metal, or NKOTB, British Steel. But the story of Judas Priest isn't just one of determination and eventual success. It's also a story about how they changed the genre forever. You've changed things forever. There's no going back. That monster attitude that the band had, that they were carrying around, they took that fundamental pillar of metal, the defiant, critical, oppositional pillar, and they made it the core of their musical project. That sound of doom that Black Sabbath was warning the world about in the 1970s, Judas Priest adopted it and owned it, as if to say that thunderous and terrifying sound, that harbinger of industrial chaos and death, the sound of war machines that keep turning, that's us. That's our sound, the sound we make. We are the ones that we've been warning you about. If you look at the lyrics to Rapid Fire, that song, that song that I introduced them with, Judas Priest is positing themselves as the world enders of popular metal myth. Here we go. Pounding the world like a battering ram, forging the furnace for the final grand slam. Bit of a mixed metaphor there, but remember when I said that heavy metal was obsessed with the superlative? Even though they are inexplicably plunking American baseball imagery into a song that's 
decidedly not about baseball, look at the kind of imagery lead singer Rob Halford is choosing. Not a hit. It's not a double or a triple. It's not even a home run. It's the most points that you can score at once in baseball. A grand slam. And it's not just any grand slam. It's the final grand slam. It's at the very end of the spectrum, right? Of a game that Judas Priest has absolutely no cultural connection to whatsoever. But Halliford continues. Chopping away at the source, soon the course will be done, leaving a trail of destruction that's second to none. I, lo- I love it when he trills the R on destruction. Like, like he just goes full G.I. Joe villain. And of course, it's second to none because that's the most it could be. It's the estist. Oh, I just realized there's... This horse that I've been punching under my desk for the last two minutes is dead. Huh. It's weird. Anyway, so you get it. And if you're sitting there going, uh, hey, you know, I don't I don't know, Reggie. I think the whole uh, chip on the shoulder inform the music feels like a bit of a, an editorial imposition on your part. I'm losing confidence in your impartiality as a neutral observer and objective events. Well, that's fair enough. My name's not Reggie. But just listen to a bit of Judas Priest from their first album, Rockarola. This is Cheater from a little nine-minute medley on the A side. familiar? To me, it feels like just like the bluesier tracks from those four bands that we talked about in the last episode. Judas Priest really thought that they were going to be in the first wave of heavy metal, and because they weren't, it completely transformed the way they made music. When you get to British Steel point of entry and screaming for vengeance in the 80s, they have stripped the blues out of metal almost entirely. In the 1970s, Black Sabbath began that transformation of blues and jazz into heavy metal. And in the 1980s, Judas Priest completed it. One of the most interesting aspects of their success has to do with the demographic of their audience. Judas Priest didn't carry metal forward because they were just better at metal than Sabbath, which you know still existed at this point. Sabbath were of the generation that in America we would call baby boomers. They were born between 1946 and 1964, and for the most part, so was a lot of their audience. Maybe just sort of the younger end of it. And the, the doom and gloom had sort of a short shelf life with the, bloom, with, the, with the bloomers, with the boomers, because they were on their way out of the cities and the flower daisy chains, and they were back to the suburbs to clerk for their dad's law firm. You know, they were done. They, they were... Uh, obviously a, a very impulsive generation because of all the lead poisoning, which turned them into monsters. But if if there are any boomers listening, um, I just I want to apologize for that last comment. I will talk slower. In 10 years, the British are going to elect Margaret Thatcher to smash unions and privatize everything. While in America, we take an entirely different tack 
and elect Ronald Reagan to smash unions and privatize everything. The boomers bounced on that peace and love noise the minute they realized that there ain't no money in that shit. And that was a big chunk of Sabbath's crowd. But if the boomers retained any fondness for the likes of Sabbath and their ilk, they disabused themselves of any such sentiment towards bands like Judas Priest. Boomers hated heavy metal in its new wave. But their kids, gosh, they sure didn't. Ah, gosh, I I sure like that new wave of British heavy metal. If the Nuwabum seems at times just a a squanch, heavy-handed, or emotionally immature, that's because the audience for this second iteration of metal were predominantly teenagers. They were born between 1965 and 1980, and this was Generation Unknown, or X. And while the tail end of MTV Youth would eventually shrug their way into ironic grandma sweaters in the early 90s, at this point, they were all denim and leather, cassettes and cocaine, dungeons and dragons, metal-spiked wristbands and acid-washed jeans, belts lined with bullets and heads lined with mullets. My friends, I am talking about trouble right here in River City with a capital T and that rhymes with P and that's... What the fuck? Where did I just go right now? Where did I go? What was that? Full disclosure, I was born in 1980, so while I am technically a member of Gen X, I have never been a member of Gen X. But I'm, I'm also not a millennial. I'm, I'm not a girl not yet a woman. Uh, Generation X to me was always John Hughes and Duran Duran. The band so nice, they named them Duran Duran. And as a zero to 10 year old in the 80s, the Gen X brand of youthful rebellion, as I said before, scared the holy living fuck out of me. If you saw it, as I did from that claustrophobic Ridley Scott below the waist angle, the young people of the 1980s were nihilistic sociopaths. They were driven by the singular and psychotic desire to tear down the worlds that their parents had inherited from their grandparents. The greatest generation. Uh, They had zero plan for what to do after they turned Gotham into ashes. I never felt that my brothers and my older cousins' generation knew what they wanted from life, but they sure AF knew what they didn't. So let's take one more look at the lyrics from of Judas Priest. If you will turn in your hymnals to the eighth album, 1982's Screaming for Vengeance, from the title track, A Screamin' for a Vengeance. Hey, listen. Don't you let them get your mind. Fill your brain with orders, and that's not right. They're playing at a game that draws you closer. It's probably baseball. Till you're living in a world that's ruled by fear. Always taking baby out, that's okay. I have no fucking idea what that means. What they're given, maybe it's out of phase with me. Last lyrics out of phase with me. Uh, Told you once, you're never going to win the race. And here we go. Same old no tomorrow, kicked in the face. We are screaming. Screaming for vengeance. The world is a manacled place. Screaming. Screaming for vengeance. 
the world is defiled in disgrace. Good day, sunshine. Good day, sunshine. Good day, sunshine. A little palate cleanser there. Uh, same old no tomorrow kicked in the face might as well be the tattoo that Gen X gets somewhere on their now pudgy bodies. That is like the slogan for Gen X, or at least it was at the time. I don't know. I don't know what the slogan is now. Maybe where's the Starbucks in this town? So I want to make one more point about Judas Priest, and then I got to move on to the other three bands. I was saying that they that they mutated those original pillars of metal, becoming the terrible sound that Sabbath only described through their discography. And it's important to note that because adopting that big, scary sound kind of blurs the line on the distinction that I was making in the first episode about critique and advocacy. Metal isn't saying, look at this thing, look at executions, they're awesome. No, they're saying, look at executions, it's fucked up. But we're going to talk about it in a way that's super metal. Um, Sabbath was saying, this thing we're talking about, it's fucked up. And Judas Priest did that too with songs like Metal Gods and Electric Eye. You know, there were warnings about the impending robot apocalypse and government surveillance, but... But then something interesting happens when the next song on the album turns you, the artist, into something equally terrible and equally not to be fucked with a bull. And that that little flap of the butterfly wings, it ends up creating hurricanes in about a decade through multiple branches of the heavy metal family tree. And, and we'll get to that uh, a little bit later in this episode. Black Sabbath was writing love songs about the devil in 1970. And by 81, you had bands like Venom writing love songs to the devil completely unironically and titling their albums Welcome to Hell and At War with Satan, which sounds like you would be fighting Satan, but I don't think that's the case. I think they're fighting with Satan at war, like Venom and Satan, like went to the same high school and grew up in the same town. And so that's why they they both enlisted at the same time. And now they're both fighting in the same war against another country like France or something. Um, And honestly, my money's on Venom and Satan. But apart from the live action role playing genres of metal, uh, the adoption of that sound really leads to some of the like tough guy swagger metal that Pantera kind of pioneered and then got picked up by a bunch of fuck basket bands like Five Finger Death Punch and Breaking Benjamin. You know, and it was annoying kind of when Pantera did it, but it still worked. Not so much with the others. It's like how. Okay, remember how Scott Weiland was always trying really hard to be sexy and cool, and it was annoying, but he was also kind of sexy and cool while he was doing it? It's sort of like that. I don't know. The thing that I think is so cool about Judas Priest being the originators of the hyper-masculine strain of modern metal is that, as, as often is the case, it comes from their frontman, Rob Halliford, who, as many of you know, is gay. Now, there's nothing to say that a gay man can't be hyper-masculine. Obviously not. But that was certainly not the prevailing wisdom in 1980. I still very distinctly remember the word, uh, the F word being a punchline in movies, like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. People forget that, but it's like, 
yeah, that was the joke. They would turn to each other and, and call each other that name. And it's like, wow, <laughs> that movie came out in 1989. And, and Halliford didn't come out until nine years later, nine years after 1989. Uh, in an interview with MTV, where he just casually began a sentence with, speaking as a gay man, there it is, the rest is history. Halford said that it took him so long to come out because, and it's just, this breaks my heart. He didn't want to disappoint his family, his bandmates, and his fans. And he honestly did not know what the reaction would be. And I'm going to read a little bit of him here talking about what the response was during an interview with Fox Sports Radio Show. I have no idea why he was being interviewed by Fox Sports Radio, uh, other than to discuss his deep and abiding love of the Grand Slam, I guess. Anyway, he said this, I've never seen such an outpouring of love from people in all my life. The letters, the faxes, the phone calls from everybody in the metal community. Rob, we just don't care. We want you to be who you are. We want you to sing those songs. We want to come see you. And that was a tremendously uplifting moment for me. And it was a tremendously uplifting moment for metal. I just, I need to meet the person who sent Rob Halliford a congratulatory coming out fax. I need that to happen in my life because I can only imagine that it was an image of Detective Joe Friday, you know, like with a notepad saying, just the facts, ma'am, you're gay. But that, listen, that's just the hope that I have. I don't know where you're coming from on the issue. When I think of the new album, I think of Judas Priest. Sabbath had been given new life, replacing Ozzy with Ronnie James Dio, but they were still Black Sabbath and had a decade of records under the, their belt. Priest was heavy metal 2.0, the, the next generation. They were the, the new kids on the block. Holy shit, it all makes sense now. Had this next band I'm going to talk about not been laying the groundwork for the second British invasion, there might have been no after Sabbath. This band was not the clean steel and shiny black leather of Priest. They were a proto-Nuwabam band made of cigarettes and whiskey. If Priest were the vigilantes out to remake metal in their own image, these guys were the nihilistic barbarian horde sacking villages and stealing your lunch money. And the only harbinger of their imminent approach was a noxious cloud of marlboro red, an ominous shadow of twin orbs rising over your precious, unsuspecting letter O's, and the hapless death knell of your prize-winning front lawn. Hide your shit. It's Motorhead. Formed in 1975 and eventually coalescing into the terrible trio of Lemmy Kilmister on vocals and bass, Phil Filthy Animal Taylor on drums, and Fast Eddie Clark on guitar. 1983, Lemmy was quoted in a book called Rock Family Trees saying he wanted Motorhead to 
concentrate on very basic music. Loud, fast, city, raucous, arrogant, paranoid, speed freak, rock and roll. I, I don't know if Lemmy sounds like that. Lemmy, anyway, I think that you can check those off of your list, probably. If Judas Priest adopted Sabbaths, hey, look at this thing, that's fucked up, and transformed themselves into a symbol of those fucked up things, Motorhead was just saying, hey, we're fucked up, and you can be fucked up too. Somebody cue the more you know Rainbow Star. Dun, 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 dun. Motorhead took all of the implied depravity of heavy metal and just chugged it. Their biggest hits were songs like the one you heard, Overkill, about how they like their music, and Bomber, which is written from the perspective of a psychopath piloting a bombing mission in World War II, and the Ace of Spades, about how gambling both sucks and kind of totally rules. Let Me Kill Mister is what in America, you might call a roughneck, which is not to be confused with a redneck, which is a derogatory term for someone with rural origins. There is also a you know blue collar and white collar uh, with roughneck and redneck. So because here in the states, the human neck determines social hierarchy. It always has, and it always will. A roughneck is something like a dangerous fellow. Someone who might fuck you up for money or just for fun. A violent, brutish thug of little to no compassion and even less intelligence. You might call Lemmy Kilmister a roughneck. But you would be wrong. If Lemmy were a roughneck, you would expect a song called Orgasmatron, the title track from the 1986 album by the same name, to be a celebration of fornication. Well, let me read you the lyrics to the first verse, and then you can decide what this song is about. I am the one, Orgasmatron, the outstretched, grasping hand. Okay, so far, so good. My image is of agony, my servants rape the land. Okay, so where are we going with this? Obsequious and arrogant, clandestine and vain. Two thousand years of misery, of torture in my name. So, yeah, this is, like, way less sexy than we thought it was going to be. Hypocrisy made paramount, paranoia the law. My name is called religion, sadistic, sacred whore. Which is not sexy at all. It's actually, like, the opposite of sexy. So I'm going to jump to the last verse and just go straight through so you can see what Lemmy is saying here. I march before a martyred world, an army for the fight. I speak of great heroic days of victory and might. I hold a banner drenched in blood. I urge you to be brave. I lead you to your destiny. I lead you to your grave. Your bones will build my palaces. Your eyes will stud my crown. For I am Mars, the god of war, and I will cut you down. Yeah. So while you might hear the lyric from a song called Killed by Death, in which Lemmy coins the inimitable phrase, killed by a bunch of death, and think that he's kind of a dum-dum, as you can see from the lyrics of Orgasmatron, he isn't. Lemmy is actually a brilliant lyricist. He's probably a brilliant everything. Uh, he's quoted as, you, you know, last show, I, I made a joke about, you know, 
Motorhead's not going to surprise me with a, a viola concerto somewhere in their album. But you know what? If anybody in metal could, it's Lemmy. I'm not kidding. This guy was just incredibly talented in so many ways and probably way too smart for his own good. He's quoted as once saying, uh, people don't read anymore. It's a sad state of affairs. I don't know why I'm doing a Lemmy impression that I don't know that Lemmy necessarily sounds like, but I'm going to just keep doing it. And I don't know. He can't stop me. Um, people don't read anymore. It's a sad state of affairs. Reading is the only thing that allows you to use your imagination. When you watch films, it's someone else's vision, isn't it? Well, fuck, yeah. I guess it is. Thanks, Lemmy Kilmister of Motorhead. Why do you sound different? Lemmy was such a great lyricist that Ozzy Osbourne tapped him for four songs on his 1991 late masterpiece, No More Tears. Now, Ozzy plus Lemmy. You can imagine the ungodly panorama of death and hellfire he unleashed while scrawling with his blood-drenched dagger on parchment made of human skin. Okay, here you go. You asked for it. Times are strange Here I come but I ain't the same Mama, I'm coming home Times gone by, it seems to be You could have been a better friend to me Mama, I'm coming home You took me in Okay, I may have misled you there. Ozzy told a great story to Radio BBC Two um, about Lemmy that shows why they were such great friends and collaborators. He said, I'm good at starting lyrics, but I can't finish them. Um, he probably said, I'm starting lyrics, but I can't finish them. Is it? Is it sorry? Uh, Sharon? He'd write a bunch of lyrics for my songs. I'd give him a tape. And I had this book on World War II. I haven't read it. And I tell him, tell me what you think. I have a bunch of these lyrics whenever you can. Ozzy was going to give him a week. And Lemmy said, come back in about four hours. Eventually, Ozzy comes back for the lyrics and he says, so I got back and he goes, what do you think of these? And I go, oh, great. And then he goes, what about these? I go, oh, you got two? He goes, no, I got another one, three. I go, you've written three sets of lyrics? He says, yeah, and that book was crap. I said, what book? He says, the book you gave me. Ozzy then continues, he was a speed reader. He could read really fast. You look at people like Lemmy and you think, oh, he's a yob, but he's very well educated. 
There's a song on Sabbath 6 album, Sabotage, called Symptom of the Universe, and it starts with this sort of proto-thrash metal riff as Ozzy's just wailing on the mic, and it careens toward the four-and-a-half-minute mark. Then there's this slow, distorted guitar climbing its way higher and higher and higher, and you think, oh my god, what kind of unholy nightmare is nigh? And then they go into this. love about Symptom of the Universe is that it's a great illustration of what so many people misunderstand about metal and about metal musicians. That really great metal bands don't make the music that they do because they just they can't make anything else. More often than not, metal artists can make whatever kind of music that they want to. But what they do is they choose to make heavy metal. That's Lemmy. He had something to say about the world, and he felt that it was best said with breath begotten of a five-day bender and a steady diet of nicoamphetamine. Motorhead was like the punk of heavy metal. That comparison's made a lot, and it makes sense because there's a lot of that influence there. Even though Lemmy insisted throughout the career that we're just we're just rock and roll. Um, I don't. Please don't. If there's an estate, if there's a kill Mister estate, don't call me, please. I don't. I literally just started doing this today. I didn't prepare it. I don't know why I'm doing it. I think it's the self-destructive part of me that just says, someone sue me. Just sue the shit out of me. Motorhead was like the punk of heavy metal, and their influence can be heard in subgenres across the entire metal spectrum, whether it's thrash or death or even hardcore. Motorhead has their grimy fingerprints all over it. And we cannot discount how important Motorhead is to the metal that would come. I'm going to take a little break here. And when we come back, I want to return to pure new album with two bands, what they meant to metal, and the shadow of the behemoth, trademark, that would soon eclipse them all. Priest is MMA. Motorhead is a knife fight in an alley behind a dumpster. And if I were to waterboard that 
already tortured metaphor, this next band is more like an epic battle between two ancient armies that, for some reason, has been choreographed into a production of Phantom of the Opera. Now, before you think I'm being derisive, I used to work in the theater. So, to me, the theater is not synonymous with pretending. Theater is a search for truth through wearing of mask. Character is mask. A song is mask. Everything in theater, from the set to the lights, sound, and the script itself is an attempt to achieve truthful behavior under imaginary circumstances through the vehicle of mask. Now, in common parlance, uh, when you <laughs> reference masks on the street, uh, I guess, a mask is a tool for concealment. But in the theater, the mask doesn't hide who you are. It's a way to reveal something about yourself, something that maybe you didn't even know. So when I say that this next band is highly theatrical, I'm not saying that they're faking or playing at something. They are seeking truth through a heightened reality of myth, history, and fantasy. And to introduce them, here is their first single from their 1980 multi-platinum selling album, which as of 2022 has sold over 20 million copies worldwide. It's Run to the Hills by Iron Maiden. Since 1975, Iron Maiden has had more members coming into and out of it than George Michael. But, oh good God, who wrote that? Ugh. But, only one has been there from the start. Bassist and primary songwriter Steve Harris. Now, for those of you who just said, Oh, you forgot Dave Murray, douchebag. No, I didn't. Dave Murray was fired briefly before rejoining the band prior to the recording of the first album, and none of that is what makes me a douchebag. But I want to talk for a second about a different guy. When you think of a band, what face do you see? When I say Nirvana, you probably see an image of Kurt Cobain. When I say Blondie, you likely see Debbie Harry. When I say Santana... Obviously, you would see session keyboardist Tom Coster. But when I say Iron Maiden, I'm guessing you see a guy named Ed. Best known as Eddie the Head, the character has been featured on all 17 of... 17? Good lord, take a nap. All 17 of Iron Maiden's studio album covers and most of their singles. He is a perpetual feature of their stage show and merchandise. He has his own pinball machine and first-person shooter video game titled Ed Hunter. Oh, I get it. Ed Hunter. Like, head hunter. So Eddie is both Iron Maiden's mascot, but he is also their mask, figuratively and literally. Stage crew frequently wear Eddie masks in concert, and his giant papier-mâché head 
was once known to shoot sparks from its eyes and spit blood from its mouth. That always makes me nostalgic. It reminds me of my ex. Um, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. It reminds me of a number of exes. Eddie is Iron Maiden. He is the vehicle through which we understand their subject matter. Eddie takes us on a journey through Iron Maiden's time-traveling, reality-hopping discography as the statue of an enormous Egyptian pharaoh on the cover of Power Slave or a straight-jacketed mental patient on Peace of Mind, spelled P-I-E-C-E, because clever. He is the central icon of the band's musical project, and that project is yet another branch on the evolutionary tree of metal. For the first time in its decade-long lifespan, heavy metal was brazenly and unapologetically nerdy as fuck. Here's a list of some of Iron Maiden's uh, song titles to demonstrate. Here we go. Alexander the Great. The Speed of Light, Isle of Avalon, Out of a Silent Planet, Mother Russia, Flight of Icarus, Genghis Khan, or if you're uh, you're English, you say you say Genghis Khan, Genghis Khan if you're English, or an American who's a, a butthole. Empire of the Clouds, The Duelists, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, Twilight Zone. Wicker Man, Satellite 15, The Final Frontier, El Dorado, Phantom of the Opera, as referenced before, and probably my favorite, probably unequivocally, I don't think those two words go together, but Caught Somewhere in Time. Yes, yes you are, and that time is 1982. This is not uh, an insignificant amount of classical material for a heavy metal band. Edgar Allan Poe, William Shakespeare, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, William Shatner, all the greats are there. And Iron Maiden does not stray from those essential pillars of metal. Of metal. Um, that's why I do a podcast, because I talk well. Uh, that first song I played for you, Run for the Hills, is about the Native American genocide, and I hope for the love of God that I don't have to explain to anyone out there that the band didn't come down on the side of pro. They're laying down a master's thesis over cascading twin guitars and Bruce Dickinson's falsetto banshee keen, and it's fantastic. It's not my most beloved iteration of heavy metal, but it did open the door for so many metal artists that I love to unleash their dorkdom like a plague of highly educated locusts. The Liverpudlian doom metal band Conan has a four-album discography devoted exclusively to the 1930s pulp character of Robert E. Howard, Conan the Barbarian. There is a blackened death metal band from Ukraine called 1914, who came out with an album a few years ago called Eschatology of War, and have written two more since then, all of which are painstakingly specific to World War I. And then you have the increasingly popular Mastodon, who led the uh, metal renaissance in the aughts. And their, their prog metal opus, Crack the Sky, is the story of a quadriplegic child who teaches himself to astral project and falls through a fidger. Fidger? 
What in God's name is happening to my brain? It, jeez, it... He falls through a fissure in the space-time continuum, arriving in the body of Gregory Rasputin, just moments before his assassination. The two spirits spend the remainder of the record meeting wizards from other planets and racing to return the boy to his body before it's too late. The album ends ambiguously, but shadowed in tragedy, as Mastodon's next effort would be The Hunter. Iron Maiden brought fantasy, history, and literature into heavy metal with high-concept storytelling and imagination, and whatever melodramatic goofiness may have come with it can be forgiven considering the great debt of gratitude Iron Maiden are owed by metal nerds everywhere. Live long and prosper. And finally, we've come to the end of our metaphor with Judas Priest as the ultimate fighting championship, Motorhead as two hobos scrapping over one bologna sandwich, and Iron Maiden as a blood-drenched production of Les Mis set in outer space. Our final band continues the theme of theatricality and metal. Theatricality and deception, powerful tools to the uninitiated, aren't they, Bruce? But after something of a different fashion. That band is Venom, the professional wrestling of heavy metal. Venom formed in 1978 in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, which is apparently the evilest place in the world. While the vast majority of non-metalheads will recognize the names of the previous three bands, almost no one outside of the metal community has ever heard of Venom, let alone heard one of their albums or one of their songs. So I'm including them in this episode because Venom are really the beginning of a subculture in heavy metal that has grown from an esoteric underground to full-blown movement that encompasses at least two major subgenres. So whether you consider them the first black or death metal is sort of a matter of conjecture, but what they are unequivocally is extreme. Now, again, I'm Gen X. When you say extreme to a Gen Xer, they undoubtedly see visions of skateboards and sport drinks that vomit neon colors at you in a cacophony of laser sounds. And of course, there is no E at the beginning of the word. It's capital X followed by a dash. An extreme dash. Uh, it's also where I see the biggest divergence yet from my original formula for heavy metal. Judas Priest and Motorhead really owned the more threatening aspects of heavy metal as a way of turning criticism against their critics, saying, yes, we are heavy metal, and we are here to destroy your world with metaphors. More, more like metal fours. Huh? Ugh. Venom and the bands that followed in their cloven footsteps got rid of the metaphor. And the reason I equate them with professional wrestling is because, okay, spoiler alert, professional wrestling isn't real. But it's an industry built on the premise that there are millions of kids who don't know that and millions of adults who don't care. This is Venom's lead singer and bassist Conrad Lant, also known as... <sighs> uh, 
Kronos in an interview with The Quietus talking about how Venom is different than Black Sabbath. I used to listen to Sabbath and Ozzy would go, what is this that stands before me? Oh God, help me. And I would think, what the fuck are you doing? You just spoiled the song. He said spoilt. You just spoilt the song. So I thought, right, I'm going to be that thing that stands before you. I want to be that fucking demon who you're afraid of. Which is sort of a weird take because that's the entire premise of the song. Like, I'm not sure what Kronos wanted to hear from Ozzy. Like, what is this that stands before me? Oh, sweet. It's the devil. This really made my weekend. Like, he gets that it's a character in a song, right? Ozzy didn't really witness the apocalypse in 1970 because we still have a world and, like, buildings and shit. I had Froyo the other day, so... The second song off of their first album, Welcome to Hell, which is also what it says on Kronos' doormat, offers this bit of Wednesday wisdom. Kill, we will kill. Death, masturbating on the deeds we have done. Hell commands death, kill. Argue not or feel the death of sun. Burning lives, burning, asking me for the mercy of God. Ancient cries, crying, which is what ancient cries do, to be fair. Acting fast upon the way of the dog, which I think is a reference to Psalm 22. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. But, you know, he's only got so many syllables to work with, so he's going to... Now, I don't, I don't think Venom is really asking their listeners to kill people and jerk off to it. And there are far more repulsive lyrics in Mayhem and Slayer songs, among others. But Venom is where that all started. And while I know Venom are playing characters in their music, and Kronos, like Corpse Grinder of Cannibal Corpse... God, do you feel as stupid listening to this sentence as I do saying it? Kronos, like Corpse Grinder of Cannibal Corpse, thinks that his music is like a horror film. It's not real, it's shtick. It's a gimmick. It's Brutus the Barber Beefcake putting his opponents in a sleeper hold and cutting their unconscious hair in the center of the ring. But one of the subgenres that it spawned, black metal, which shares the name with a, a Venom song title, is comprised largely of the kind of young person that takes things very, very seriously. From 1992 to 1995 in Norway, somewhere between 45 and 50 wooden churches, what they call stave churches, were destroyed by fire. These are, like, from the Middle Ages. Like, these are really old churches. Uh, And about a third of those fires were deliberately set by members of the black metal movement. Sorry, black metal gives me indigestion. Bands like Mayhem, Dark Throne, Emperor, and Immortal were part of what was the second wave of black metal in Norway. NKOTB for short. And at the center of that swirling shitstorm of incel dumb fuckery was a guy named Christian Vikernes, also known as Varg Vikernes. Vikernes, 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 Vikernes. Potato, potato. Um, I just imagined a potato with corpse paint. I just, I just, that's what I saw in my head. Um, welcome to the inside. And just so that you get exactly how sort of corny these guys were in their oh-so-fucking-seriously-important-movement, uh, Vikernes, actually, it's not that 
accent, is it? It's like, no, they're very oh so serious movement. It's a very serious movement. We are the face of the evil that will strike God from the sky. Uh, Vikernis originally released music under the name Count Grishnak. <laughs> One church burning. Ah, ah, ah. Pause, sip, Satan, dude. Uh, during his subsequent trial, in which he was found guilty of burning five churches and also being a human burlap sack filled with wet dicks, Vikernis said this, Through church burning and black metal music, we will awaken the Norwegians' feelings of belonging to Odin. Oh, I just got handed something here. Quick update on that story. It didn't. If you want to learn more about the early Norwegian black metal scene, you can watch the film Lords of Chaos or read the book Lords of Chaos or... Depending on where you live, you can just ask a Lord of Chaos about it yourself. But just to be clear, Venom are not responsible for the criminal actions of Norwegian teenagers over a decade after they released their first album. Black metal music isn't responsible either. Black metal isn't the reason these assholes set historical buildings on fire. It's the excuse they used. It's the excuse that this handful of psychopaths used to justify the violent shit they wanted to do anyway. Case in point, Varg Vikernes wasn't just convicted of church burnings, he was also sentenced to 21 years in prison for stabbing his own guitarist to death. Now, I don't know if that was also supposed to awaken Norwegians' feelings of belonging to Odin. It seems a little off the path there, but just FYI, it also did not do that. Our culture is replete with accusations of art inspiring violent criminal acts. It's an idea that somehow these were just regular kids just swinging a lunchbox filled with lutefisk as they skipped to school until they, they found a compact disc in their path and it, and it emanated pure evil and they went home and played it and immediately decided to violently oppose foreign influence in their country. That's not it. And can you guess which, can you guess which groups of people that included? I already told you Christianity was one of them, but if we spin the wheel of delusional intolerance here, it ends up on... Oh, yeah, it's the Jews. Wow. Who'd have thunk that? Huh. But they threw in anything that they deemed non-European and gay people for some homosexual seasoning in their hate lasagna. Now, there was a Swedish band in 1992 started by a former neo-Nazi that saw their music as a way to promote a nationalist agenda and using coded language to advance the cause of neo-Nazism. They even took their band name from a World War II Nazi submarine base that was touted by the Third Reich as being invincible. Uh, yeah. You want to hear extreme music? Okay. This is extreme. Ace of Base. Ulf Ekberg was a Nazi. Seriously. Google it. So, did Swedish dance pop in the 90s lead to the resurgence of right-wing terrorism around the world today? No, of course not. And black metal doesn't make you kill people. Being a murderer does. And every band we've talked to about today caused an adaptation of the musical formula of heavy metal. I think the divergence Venom initiated from those initial pillars is the most extreme. Extreme! 
sports drinks. Does that mean they, they aren't actually heavy metal? Probably not. But at what point does a species adapt to the point in which it becomes a new species? You know, at what point does a wolf become a dog? I don't know that we have an answer for that. So email me at av4apod at gmail.com or find me on Twitter, av4apod. Learn me about dogs. Uh, But finally, I want to end today by talking about what comes next. We talked about these four bands from the new album. Uh, This movement that came from industrial England once again to conquer the states and the world and to really epitomize what heavy metal was. And now I want to talk about what's going to happen after, 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 after. Every era of heavy metal has a band or bands that epitomize what heavy metal is and where it's going. I would argue that that line begins with Black Sabbath Go listen to the first episode if you want to hear about that. In the early 70s and continues on to Judas Priest and Iron Maiden. Maybe Motorhead in the late 70s, early 80s. But around the mid to late 80s, a new species of heavy metal emerges where all those lines come together once again. There is a band that epitomizes what metal comes to be and what metal will be for the foreseeable future. And what is it that stands before us, casting this ominous shadow approaching from the future past? Fuck around and find out. On the next episode of And Volume For All.